Good morning. All right, let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study, and we pray that you will watch over us, bless us, be with those members who are struggling with illness, that you will bring healing to them in accordance with your will. I pray that our minds will be enlightened to know you, your kingdom, your methods, and that we can be empowered to, to wake up this world to, to the truth about uh, your, your methods, we, that you might come soon, we pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number seven on our quarterly origins, and the title this week is Through a Glass Darkly. In the memory text, somebody read the memory text, which comes out of 1 Corinthians 3.19. And it's, uh, in the lesson, it's quoted in the NIV. Somebody read that for us. Wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And I thought, well, let's spend some time on this. We've heard it our whole lives. The wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. He catches the wise in their craftiness. What is the wisdom? of the world. In this world, what is the wise method, action, or principle of conduct? Survival of the fittest. Survival of the fittest. Yes, and I, I started just throwing some, uh, so that's the first one on my list, so survival of the fittest. See if you've heard some of these others, kind of maybe more mainstream, uh, do unto others before they do unto you. You heard that? Arm yourself and watch your back. Peter had that same philosophy, if you remember. He carried a sword. Think that through, guys. One, one of the apostles hanging out with Christ, going everywhere, he's got a sword. Today he'd be carrying his you know, semi-automatic. It's, that's the, that was the weapon of the day, wasn't it? Yeah, sure was. Uh, kill or be killed. Kill them all and let God sort out the innocent. You've heard these things? Yeah, how about this? Might is right. If you don't get caught, it isn't cheating. It's only illegal if you get caught. Rules are meant to be broken. Someone's got to pay. Or, no good deed goes unpunished. Justice requires punishment. This is the wisdom of the world, right? And and let's do the happiness wisdom. Happiness comes from winning, which means happiness comes from beating another person. Happiness comes from riches or richness, which means getting more than other people. Happiness comes from power, which means having something over other people. Happiness comes from gratifying self regardless of other people. A few years back, one of the local pastors in a... Sermon gave gave a this following illustration out of a Sports Illustrated survey, a 1997 poll of 180, 198 sprinters, swimmers, powerlifters, and others uh, were asked two questions. First question: You are offered a banned performance-enhancing substance with two guarantees: one, you will not be caught, and two, you will win your competition. Get your gold medal. 198 athletes were asked. 195 said yes, they would take it. Would you take it? Yes. Three said no. Then they were asked a second question. You were offered a banned performance enhancing substance with three guarantees. You will not get caught. You will win every competition you enter for the next five years, and you will die from the side effects. Would you take it? More than half said yes. Does this sound like wisdom to you? 
Is the wisdom of the world foolishness? So let's re-examine the common ideas above and consider their wisdom. The strong survive. Based on what principle? What's that idea based on? Pardon? Evolution. Yeah, it's based on evolution and that the strong survive and destroy the weak. And what does this actual... Does it, can anybody give me what this principle leads to if followed without restraint? What Hitler did? Thank you. Did you hear what he said? Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler got power. He was the powerful one, and his organization was powerful. And they preyed on the weak, not just the Jews or the Slavs or the Gypsies, but the infirmed, the mentally ill, the mentally retarded, the elderly in the nursing homes, and the recidivist criminals were all killed. All killed. For what purpose? He wanted to purify the gene pool. He wanted to make a master race. Through purposeful evolutionary logic, the strong will destroy the weak, and the strong genes will survive, and we will evolve to higher levels of, of, uh, of development. And ethnic cleansing as well. Ethnic cleansing, based on this idea that those were bad genes. They were inferior in some way. Hmm. Does anybody like that view? Do you notice how the people who promote evolution don't actually want to you know, point out that this was tried in society once? Um, do unto others before they do unto you. What's that based on? Has anybody ever heard that or is that just me? Yeah, do unto others before they do unto you. What's that based on? What, what's the underlying idea behind that statement? Military strategy. Well, military strategy as in a, uh, you know, first strike scenario, yeah. But what's it ba- why would we have that strategy? Why do we think along those lines? What's, what's underlying that? Yes. Pray what you're going to do to me. Ah. Uh-huh. The idea that you're out to get me, so I better get you before you get me. So it's based on this idea of distrust, mutual distrust, mutual self-centeredness, mutual motive of, of exploitation to dominate and control. It's based on the principles of survival of the fittest, the strong survive. That's what it's based on. Yeah. I'm sorry, I just wanted to say something more about the point you were making before. I mean, if the, if the strong survive, don't at some point the strong start looking around and say, but wait, I need to be stronger than you, and so they're just cannibalizing one another, and it ends up with just nothing? That's exactly what happens. Exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Um, how about if you don't get caught, it isn't cheating? What's that based on? What kind of a law? Oh, an arbitrary law, you see? For instance, if you don't get caught smoking by your mother when you're an adolescent, do you get healthier? You see? If, if, if it's a natural law then it really doesn't matter if somebody catches you or not, does it? You still get the same destructive consequences. But if it's an arbitrary law, then it really has no negative consequences if you aren't caught. You see, this is the view that many hold. How about rules are meant to be broken? Now, there can be actually some truth in that. (laughs) But what's it based on again? What kind of law? See, natural laws are not, it's not, we're not meant to break the laws of nature. We're not meant to break those. We're not meant to, to try and uh, draw gill slits on our, on, our, on our throats and then go underwater and try to breathe through these artistic little impressions on our, no, we're not meant to break that law. But arbitrary laws, like the speed limit, 
and your wife or husband is having a heart attack and you need to get them to the hospital and, or they're having a stroke and you've got to get them to Erlanger and there's so many minutes and they can actually reverse the stroke. Do you speed? Yes. Yeah, I mean, just some, some laws are meant to be broken in some circumstances, but only arbitrary ones, not natural ones. That's an important distinction. Um, someone's got to pay. You ever heard this? Someone's got to pay. Based on what kind of law? Yeah. Do we see this in theology? This idea, someone's got to pay. No good deed goes unpunished. Have you heard this? No good deed goes unpunished. What's that based on? It's based, there's an underlying idea behind that. I mean, how many have heard that? Come on. Everybody, no good deed goes on. What's that based on? What's the underlying idea that, that, that stems from that, 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 that phrase that has gotten so much traction, it's repeated throughout history? No good deed goes unpunished. Hmm. Bad things happen to good people. Bad things happen to good people. Doing good or doing good doesn't pay. It only pays to watch out for yourself. If you do good, you're going to get taken advantage of. You're going to get hurt. Don't do good, because if you do good, you're going to pay for it. Nice guys finish last. Oh, I didn't think of that one. Good. Nice guys finish last. That's a great one. Yeah. How about nice girls? <laughs> Them too. Okay. Look out for number one. Look out for number one. Another one. Exactly. Look out for number one. But that could be correct. If number one is God? Right. Yeah. <laughs> but is that what it's meant, usually? No. No, no it's not. Yeah. Um, how about justice equals punishment? Or justice requires punishment? Again... What kind of law? Do we have to punish people who refuse to exercise by inflicting obesity and heart disease on them? No, of course not. Um, what, ha- what happiness comes from winning from beating the other person? Do you know how much this is taught? What, what, what's happening tomorrow? Oh, so- somebody knows there's something called the Super Bowl. And somebody, there's a whole bunch of people looking forward to being happy tomorrow. Based on what? Which means that they what? They beat somebody else. And they beat them badly, right? You watch, you watch, and isn't it true that the more, um, more badly they beat the other team, the better they feel? Yeah. Or conversely, the worse their team gets beaten, the worse they feel? What's, what's that about? That we won't even allow a tie. We won't allow a tie. They can't tie, walk off the field, sharing two trophies, can they? No. No, we, we, won't, we won't allow that. Happiness comes from richness. Getting more wealth than others. And you notice some people who go down this path, that, that no matter how much they get, it's not enough. Why is it not enough? Does happiness come from accumulation of wealth? No. Look around at the, at the tragic stories out of the entertainment industry of people who accumulated wealth and popularity, were miserable, unhappy. Yeah. Happiness comes from power. And power is, is, is nothing if it doesn't have power over people, right? Do you have power living on an island alone? When people talk about power, it's only their ability to exert themselves over others. Isn't that what real power is talking about? 
to make other people or things or organizations do what you want. That's what power. It's not self-power that we're talking here that, that people want. In other words, self-governance. From where does happiness actually come? You thought about that? Because I have patients in my office. I say, well, tell me, you know, what is it uh, that you're coming to see me for? What is, it, what is your goal for being here? What would you like to accomplish? I want to be happy. I want to be happy. I want to be happy. I hear it all the time. I want to be happy. Have you ever thought, okay, let's see. I'm patient. They want happiness. What do you give them? Comes in a bottle? Copay? You get it? Happiness in a bottle? No? Yes? Paul says in Philippians, I've learned to be content in all things, with little and with much. So is contentment happiness? I don't know if contentment is happiness, but I believe contentment is what we're to seek. Or is contentment sullenness? (laughs) No, I wouldn't say sullen. I think it's a peace. It's a perfect peace. Contentment, I think, can be part of happiness. Is contentment and happiness the same in your mind? Not quite, but it's it's important to be content. There's no question. And being a malcontent <laughs> doesn't bring happiness, does it? No. So I think that's important. Have you ever thought about what brings happiness? I have. I've, I've got a prescription for it. If you want to know, yes. I don't think you find happiness. I think happiness comes from within. Well, determined to be a happy person. You're, I think you're. I like the direction you're going with that. Doing for others. I, I like the direction we're going with that. She said doing for others. You can't make somebody else happy. You, know, you definitely can't make another person happy. No, no, you can't enforce it. Now, be happy right now. I want you all to be happy. <laughs> What's that frown? I said be happy. Yes. If you wouldn't define it as contentment as a psychiatrist, how would you define happiness? You know, happiness, I think, is a state of joy contentment it's a it's a conglomeration of well actually what i think come where happiness comes from happiness comes from healthiness it's a it's an automatic outgrowth of healthiness across all spheres the healthier you are physically mentally psychologically relationally spiritually the happier you will be the unhealthier you are in any of those spheres the less happy you will be. So happiness is a state of being that comes as the automatic outgrowth from being healthy. And so we don't focus on being happy, we focus on being healthy. So we live healthy lives physically, we deal with our own issues spiritually, we live healthy lives relationally, we deal with psychological constructs to be healthy psychologically, and the more that we practice God's methods in harmony with it, and of course healthiness stems from living in harmony with God's design for life, on all spheres, and as we operate in there, happiness is the automatic conclusion. What do you all think? It's a decision. Uh, it's a decision. Uh, yes, I, 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 yes, but that's part of a decision to be happy? No, I guess, yeah. Or a decision to be healthy? A decision to be happy no matter what circumstances you're in. Yes, and, and having a good... And I, and I understand what you're saying, because sometimes we can find things that undermine our health that we haven't chosen. Being paralyzed. Right, right, exactly right. So our health can be compromised for things that we have no power over. We've been exposed to something, okay? And we, we've got sickness of some kind. Uh, so a mental attitude, but I will still say, we can still have a mental attitude, we can still find peace and contentment in a larger scheme, a larger framework with a healthy spirituality that can override an unhealthy physical life. But even in that state, we're happier when we're healthier. Even in the state of maintaining a, a healthy spiritual health that can keep us in a happy spiritual attitude, let's say that, 
When we're in physical pain, it undermines the degree of our contentment, doesn't it? When we're sick, it undermines us. So I, I still think, I agree with you, but I still think that the healthiness, the healthier we are, the happier we are. Yes. Can a person who's clinically depressed and yet they make that decision, I'm going to be happy no matter what, can they actually be happy? No, I don't think so because they're not healthy. Happiness is to love the Savior, living a life. Yeah, I heard that song. It is, but happiness does because loving the Savior, if you really love him, what is, it, what is the consequence? Is it something, it's just, well, I have good warm feelings. That's, that's all it means. Where when we love him, if you love me, you, some, some scriptures say obey me, which means basically you live in harmony with the way I build things. So if you love me, you follow my methods. You apply my methods, and my methods are the methods that health is built upon. And so you get healthier and happier in every sphere of your life if you love me and follow me. It's an outgrowth. It's a consequence. Yeah. Sunday's lesson. The title is The Earth is the Lord's. What do you think about the title? The Earth is the Lord's. This is the title of the lesson. Well, there's a, it's, a, it's a true statement. It's a true statement. And it has significant implications for how we understand Scripture and the conflict, God's conflict with Satan. Has the earth ever been Satan's? Did Satan ever have ownership over the earth? Did Satan ever claim the earth is his? Yes. But was it his? This is a very important distinction because there are theologies out there that miss this point. They actually believe that when Adam sinned, that Satan now gained ownership rights of some sort, some legal claim, if you will, to earth as his. And that when Christ came to earth to battle Satan for the salvation of mankind and the ultimate eradication of sin, that his battle with Satan included some legal aspect to overcome the ownership claims of Satan on earth. Uh, some call this Christus Victor model or other things. It's part of the model woven in. It's, it's, it's based on an error in, in understanding. Yes. How does that reconcile that text in Job that talks about the sons of uh, God coming together representing the different worlds and Satan is there? Yes, it reconciles beautifully. It's, uh, it reconciles beautifully. He comes along making his claim. I have another text for that claim. This is in Luke 4, uh, 5 and 7 where Satan is confronting Christ and he says to Christ, I will give you, showing all the land, all the kingdoms of the earth, and he says, I will give you their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will be yours. So he makes a direct claim in this text, in the case of Job, when all the sons of God came together before Satan comes from walking to and fro on the earth, and the Lord says, why are you here, basically? Where'd you come from? Walking to and fro? Oh, no, 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 no. Have you considered Job? Job's perfect and righteous in all his ways. He does not recognize you as his representative here. You have no place here. Bye-bye. And then there's that whole other thing that goes on to, to test whether God, and we'll come to the story of Job in the lesson today if we get to it. Yes. When God created man, he said, I give you dominion over the earth, over the animals and the, and the you know, vegetation and everything. And so when man sinned, basically Satan gained dominion over us. Now we can take exception to his dominion and, and you know you know keep our relationship with God. But you know that that's where the confusion comes in, you know, with respect to Well the, the, because he did gain access, I like the word access. 
Um, and it's a, it's a restrained access, if you read Scripture widely. God has sent his spirit into our hearts to give us a conviction of right doing, to cause enmity between us and the serpent. Okay, He has sent his angels as a restraining hand to hold back the four winds of strife, to battle the principalities and powers of darkness. You see in, uh, in Daniel chapter 10, when, when Daniel prays, Gabriel comes. And says, as soon as you began praying, I, I was sent, but the prince of Persia opposed me. Now the prince of Greece is coming to, to aid the prince of Persia in his battle for me. No one stands with me except Michael, your prince. Remember the story. Who's the prince of Persia? Satan. No. Satan's the prince of this earth, prince of the world. So is is the world is Persia bigger than the world or littler than the world, no. smaller than the world? One of his underlings. So this is one of his underlings. This is one of demonic Satan's Satan's angels. This is what this is. It's describing here. Or we see in the hedge of protection that was put around the Assyrian army when Elisha prayed. Remember, God Satan has dominion and can mess with things here for sure. We see this, but he has a restrained dominion that God has always kept him on a leash. Thus far, there's coming a time that the Bible predicts in Revelation where he is unrestrained, where he will be let loose. The four winds will be let go. It's coming. Hasn't happened yet. So, but this, I agree with this person. This is out of Desire of Ages 130. It says, when Satan declared to Christ, the kingdom and glory of the world are delivered unto me and to whomever I will give it. He stated what was true only in part. Why did he state true only in part? Because the best lies are the ones that are partial truths, okay? And, uh, and he declared it to serve his own purpose of deception. Satan's dominion was that wrested from Adam, but Adam was the vicegerent of the creator. His was not an independent rule. The earth is God's, and he has committed all things to his son. Adam was to reign subject to Christ. When Adam betrayed his sovereignty into Satan's hands, Christ still remained the rightful king. Thus the Lord had said to King Nebuchadnezzar, This is out of Daniel um, 4.17. The most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will. Satan can exercise his usurped authority only as God permits. When the tempter offered to Christ the kingdom and glory of the world, he was proposing that Christ should yield up the real kingship of the world and hold dominion subject to Satan. You see? So this idea that there was ever a need for Christ to come to defeat Satan for ownership purposes or to be rightful ruler or to be king of this earth is, is a, one of Satan's lies that's infected Christian thought. It's not true. Satan did not come for, uh, Christ, Christ did not come to defeat Satan for that purpose. There's other purposes involved. Let's see if we can get some of those. If someone kidnaps your child and later claims that the child is theirs, does, that, does it make their claim right? Does their claim make it so? What if your child was stolen as an infant, raised by them, grew up believing the kidnapper was their parent, even having affection in their heart and a bond for them? Would the child be theirs? But what would be necessary for the child to be yours again? Would a legal proclamation in the circumstances like I described make the child truly yours? The court has ordered that the child is yours. No. What do you want for the child to be yours? A legal proclamation or something else? Do you want the child as property you own? Or as a being that loves and trusts you? So does this scenario have any bearing on what Christ came to accomplish? 
With these thoughts in mind, let's read the third paragraph. A favorite Christian hymn begins with the words, This is my Father's world. It truly is our Father's world because he created it. There is no more legitimate claim to ownership than creatorship. God created and therefore owns the entire universe, the heavens and the earth, and all that is in them. Thoughts about that paragraph? Does it sound right to you? Or does it sound close to being right, but it sounds like something's just not quite right? It aligns pretty closely with several texts in Psalms. Well, let's, is it true that God is creator? Yeah. Is it true that all things come from him, other than evil? Yeah. Is it true that there is no more legitimate claim to ownership than creatorship? That's the most legitimate claim to ownership. So an artist, graphic designer, software designer, inventors of any kind have the claim to ownership over everything they create. Well, how about this? Did God make us in his image? Yes? Did he give us the ability to create beings in our image? So what would you think if one of your parents came in here today and said, I created you, I own you. Don't argue, there is no greater claim to ownership than creatorship. Well, that's true. You own me. Do you agree with that? Yes. It's like with the artist, the software designer, and the others that you mentioned, they can always sell their ownership interests in that whatever it is they create. Or give. Or give. Doesn't it be sold, does it? Can it be given? Right. Can you give ownership interest away? Sure. So, next, um, what kingdom wants to own things? Did the Roman Empire want to own things? Yeah. Own lands, own properties, own wealth, own people as slaves? Did the, did the Roman Empire want to own stuff? Yeah. Is, God, is God's government like that? Does, it, does he want to own stuff and own people? Next paragraph. It says, not, not only does the world belong to God, he claims ownership over he claims ownership of every creature on earth as well. No other being, at least that we know of, has the power to create life. God is the only creator and as such the ultimate owner of every creature. We are all completely dependent on God for our existence. We cannot give anything except our allegiance. Everything else on earth is, already, is his already. What do you think about that thought? Almost sounds true again. These are these closed truths, very close truths. But I think there's some ideas woven in here that may not be intended, or maybe they are. I don't know. Yes. To me, that concept leads to the very next step, which I've heard so much, and that is, I just want God to come tell me what to do. I'll be his puppet, if you will. I just want him to totally direct my life so completely that I won't make any mistakes. Okay, I, I, I'm with you. I'm, I'm with you. So first, first question, could God take this position if he wanted? Sure. There's no question. He's, he could. There's no question. The question is, does he, though? Does he choose this? Is this how he operates? Is this his nature? Is this his character? See, are we putting on him something he has the ability to do, but something that's foreign to his nature to do? You see, this is the distortion that Satan does to God constantly. He has the ability to do something, but he would not exercise that ability because it violates who he is. So imagine one day, in the not-too-distant future, a human creates artificial intelligence, a cybernetic entity that can think for itself. Could the creator of that, and it's not too far in the future, guys. We're really close. Um, could the creator of that entity choose to set it free? 
while creating it, no longer owning it. Could he? Does God take a position of owning us or the position of setting us free? Creating us and setting us free. How does the emphasis of ownership, where you draw that line, represent God? In what light does it cast his character? Does it make it seem more like a power over kind of being if we put this position of God owns you and owns all creatures? He's the owner. What if we view God instead as the scripture describes him as our heavenly father? Parents procreate their children. Do loving parents treat their children as property owned or in some other fashion? Property owned or in some other fashion? Even if you can think back to the days historically when they were slaves and people were owned, did the children of the parents get treated like the slaves? No, not property owned. What light does a parent-like construct put God in? I'm going to bring this thought, and I'm going to get several questions. Run this thought down. So where does the ownership idea put the burden of work? Does ownership make a subtle suggestion that if we are owned, we are obligated, we are his property, we're his servants, we're his slaves, and we must obey? Where is the view of the burden of work if God is our Heavenly Father? He is constantly working for our good, health, protection, development, salvation, to love and heal and restore, just like any good parent. And we respond to his tender love and care by freely choosing to obey, not obeying out of obligation to our owner. Because we agree, we love him. Does it make a difference where where you draw this ownership line? Okay, I saw several hands, yes. Culturally, there are cultures and, and individuals who have that perverted idea that they are ownership of their children and treat them as property. You know, is that ideal? No. But that, that is an infection we have within our thought processes within many cultures. Yeah, and how does that work out? I mean, can we give examples? What happens if somebody in a, in a society in which, say, a daughter particularly is owned by her father and she wants to oh, I don't know, let's say marry somebody not of their faith. What happens? Say that louder. The old, I brought you into the word, I'll take you out. Philosophy. Or they put her in a back room and leave her there. They lock her up, they imprison her, they kill her. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Do you think love grows in her heart? For her family? Do you think she develops individuality and ability to think and reason? Is this how God wants us to be? Mindless, thoughtless slaves living in fear and trepidation that at any moment he'll strike out against us and kill us for having an independent thought. Is that how he wants to relate, us to relate to him? It's a, you're right, it's a terrible, gross perversion. It's terrible. So then what do we do with the text? If I'm right on this idea, then what do we do with the text in 1 Corinthians six eighteen and 19 that says, you are not your own, you were bought with a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. How do you honor God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. You're owned now. I own you. That's what God says, right? Bought with a price automatically. 
Is Paul saying you are now slaves, property, don't think, don't ask questions, don't grow, don't develop, just do what the master says? Or is Paul saying God loved you so much he paid the ultimate price to free you from the sickness of sin and save you? Don't squander what he died to give you. Don't squander it. Obey means to live in harmony with his methods, the way life was designed. Don't squander it. You've given him a second chance. Hey, you just had a heart attack and you ended up in the ER and they did a stint and they saved you. You've been given a second chance. Don't squander it. It costs a lot to do that. You don't even have insurance. The society paid for that. Don't squander it. Live in harmony with the laws of health. Do, do better. Isn't that what he's saying here? Yes. What about the idea that we're completely dependent upon God for our existence as a justification for the fact, whoa, it's snowing, guys. Look at that. It's snowing. It's real. There's more than seven flakes out there. (laughs) Alrighty. So what about this idea we're dependent upon God for our existence? What about that? It's true, isn't it? Does that mean he owns us? Are we dependent upon oxygen and water for our existence? So we're owned by oxygen and water. Because we're dependent upon it. I don't see dependency establishing ownership at all. Yes? To what extent is ownership, then, talking about what you just said, just part of the natural operation of things? I mean, God created us to think, to decide for ourselves, to reason, to love. That's how we were created. That's in the owner's manual. Yes, and this is, the, this is beautiful. This is the point I meant. God has the power to relate to us as master and we are owned property. He has the power to do that, but is it in his nature to do that? And this is one of the, uh, the tricks of the devil constantly, is to take something that is within his power to articulate it, put it back on him, and cast him in a light that's deviant from his true nature. Yes? In that same passage in which it talks about us being bought with a price, it begins first with that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. What is the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Self-governance, self-control. Right. Yeah, so the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and, and the Holy Spirit dwells here for what purpose? To, make, to be a hand inside a puppet? To control us? Or to set us free to be self-governed, to heal us? Yeah, absolutely, well said. Our right, last paragraph says, More so we are gods not only by creation... But uh, by creation, but even more important, by redemption. Though a wonderful gift from God, human life has been greatly damaged through sin and it will end in death, a prospect that denudes life of all meaning and purpose. And I, I, you know, I'm not sure what they meant by that. I just wanted to run that by you because we like to think things through and not just take what it says. But death denudes life of all meaning and purpose. If they mean by that any future meaning and purpose any ongoing meaning and purpose, then of course, because there's no life, so there can be no more ongoing future meaning or purpose. But if they mean that by death, the life up to the point of death has no meaning and purpose, I disagree. Did Christ die? Did his life lose meaning and purpose at his death? Will Satan die in the end? And his followers. Will will Satan's purpose, will Satan's life have lost its purpose in his death? Or will his life have, have, through alternative future, will we remember what he did and his life still stands and has meaning? It still has meaning, doesn't it? Meaning of what not to do. Meaning of what doesn't work out right. 
meaning of what rebellion and, and deviating from God's cause looks like, but it still has meaning through alternative future, doesn't it? So if it means an ongoing meaning and purpose, it, it, it denudes it of that, sure, but not historical meaning and purpose that the rest of us who live can draw lessons from and benefit from. Does that make sense? All right, Monday's lesson, second paragraph. It says, the curse on the ground for Adam's sake must have involved the plant kingdom because its results would include production of thorns and thistles. The implication is that all of, all of the creation is affected by the curses resulting from sin. The Ellen White quote above states very clearly that the curse upon Cain was not limited merely to him but rested upon the whole world. So first, first point, from where did the curse come? Is it, as the lesson says in this paragraph right here, from sin? You notice how they said, the curse resulting from sin. Yes? Typically speaking, cursing is basically not being blessed. Um, it's the removal of the blessing. In other words, um, if, when, they, when, they had, when God said, you know, if you follow these things, you will be blessed. If you don't, you will be cursed. They were blessed and healthy by following those things, and when not, they removed themselves from the blessing. Did y'all hear that? Bibli- I, I love this. Thank you so much. Um, biblically speaking, she said that biblical cursing is not an infliction, it's a removal of a blessing. And think that through, because we may have some insight as to why blessings get removed. Okay, what, what, What's the reason for that? But let, let's go through. So do you agree with what the lesson says here, that curse is resulting from sin in this paragraph? And what happens if we deviate from, and sin, of course, is deviation, lawlessness or stepping outside God's law, which is deviating from his design for life. And what happens when you do that? Things don't work out well, right? I mean, I want you to see the the direct connection to the way God built things and why these things happen. It makes very much sense. So then, then with all that in mind, let's read the last paragraph, see if you have any challenges here. The flood disrupted the system of watering that God had established in crea- at creation, stripping the soil from parts of the earth and uh, de- depositing it in other parts. Even now, rain continues to leach the soil, robbing it of its fertility and further reducing the crop yield. God graciously promised not to curse the earth again. But the soil ha- we have inherited is far cry from the rich, productive soil God originally created. That, that phrasing, God graciously promised not to curse the earth again. What does that sound like to you? How does it, how does it, does it make you hear of a removed blessing? Or does it make it sound like God is inflicting? How do, how do you hear that? How, how do you think most average people would hear that? How do you think most Christians believe about cursing? Do you think it's... The Bible said it. I believe it. That's all there's to it. And what method, what law? We talked earlier today about the foolishness of the world. What method is cursing as an infliction? What, what, what method does that operate on? The, God's method or the world's? That's why they see it, because they're operating in the worldly mindset, the, the wisdom of the world. And so the wisdom of the world goes, hey, yeah, that's what you do. You, justice requires punishment. Justice requires a cursing. So God has to curse and inflict something. This is wisdom of the world. It's not godly. Does it make a difference if we say God inflicted the curse rather than God permitted the results of sin to be manifest by removing his blessing? Does it make a difference? 
Well, listen to the listen to this because we're talking about talk to reference Cain here. This is out of um, the first um, SP page fifty four um, spiritual um, spirit of prophecy. Yes, first first spirit of prophecy volume page fifty four. It says Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam, were very unlike in character. Abel feared or respected God. Cain cherished rebellious feelings and murmured against God because of the curse pronounced upon Adam and because the ground was cursed for his sin. What was the reason that he was uh, rebelling against God here? Because of the curse against Adam and the curse against sin. How do you think Cain interpreted or understood the meaning of the curse? As a withdrawn blessing or as an infliction of punishment? And what happens? This is Satan's method over and over again. Coercive pressure. I mean, we, we talk about this, the law of liberty. When you violate the law of liberty, love is destroyed and rebellion is instilled in the heart. You can try it on any relationship you want. Don't do things my way. I'm going to punish you. And, and don't, parents, don't get confused when we talk about discipline. Remember, discipline comes from the root disciple, means to teach. P- punishment comes from the root punitive, means to exact vengeance upon. It's not the same. I know we use them sometimes interchangeably. It's not. Punishment, this cursing, cursing is not a discipline. In the sense of the way it's, way it's being thought of here, as an infliction to, to exact vengeance. It's not. Who did, Cain, who did Cain blame for the curse? He blamed God. Where was the real blame? Adam. And what did God do but respect Adam's choice? You ever heard the old saying, you made your bed, you're going to lie in it or sleep in it? Yeah. I mean, Adam, you made this choice. Now you're going to reap what you've sown. I'm not doing this to you. I'm just not going to stop it. Because if I stop it, you'll get the wrong idea. You'll conclude that that way of doing business is healthy. I'm not going to stop the pain from touching a hot stove. Because if I t- stop the pain from touching a hot stove, then you'll think that there's nothing wrong with leaning on a hot burning stove. And what will happen is your hand will just completely destroy. But if I let you have the pain, you'll pull your hand back. You need to learn the lesson, Adam, since you decided not to listen to me. But Adam, but, but Cain blamed God and didn't see. He had the wisdom of the world. So the productivity, where do the problems of Earth's productivity issues, you know, as far as the produce and, and so forth, growing crops, is this coming because God is doing something to nature to cause nature to, as the lesson talked about here, thorns and thistles, when they talk about God graciously promised not to curse the Earth again? This is out of Second Selected Messages, page 288. I agree with this position. Christ never planted the seeds of death in the system. Satan planted these seeds when he tempted Adam to eat of the tree of knowledge, which meant disobedience to God. Not one noxious plant was placed in the Lord's great garden, but after Adam and Eve sinned, poisonous herbs sprang up. In the parable of the sower, the question was asked, Master, didn't you sow good seeds in the field? Where have the tares come from? The master answered, An enemy has done this. All tares are sown by the evil one. Every noxious herb is of his, of his sowing, by his ingenious methods of amalgamation, he has corrupted the earth with tares. So where does this curse arise? It doesn't resi- arise by God doing this to nature to make it harder on man. It arises from what Eve said, God pulling back the blessing to allow, allow man the freedom to experience what deviating from him causes. 
Not only really that, but Satan is now no longer confined to that one tree. Now he has access to the entire earth to do that. Yes, exactly right. Jump to Friday because we're going to build on this theme in the Friday. We're gonna, we'll come back. But jump to Friday. Question number two. It says, think about the work that science does, especially in the area of origins. There is no written labels to explain what we see. Science is entirely a human undertaking. And the human mind is limited in its scope and is prone to resist divine authority. Furthermore, Satan's influence is strongly felt in nature so that much of what we see is incompatible with God's self-revelation in the Bible. Why is it so important that we place greater confidence in Scripture than we do in science, especially when considering unique events such as the creation of our world? I, I think this lesson is filled with lots of truth and lots of ways that says it that could make misunderstanding. Because there's a lot of truth in what they're saying here. Science can misrepresent Reality. Science should not be studied unaided by Scripture. But let me read to you this. This is out of uh, Councils to Physicians and Medical Students. It's also found in Healthful Living, page 255. The duties and qualifications of a physician are not small. Every bit possible of that knowledge that is termed science should be acquired. While the seeker daily acknowledges that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Every item of experience, remember we've talked in here before about, the, about what we, we present here is the um, integrated evidence-based approach, which requires three threads to balance, science, scripture, or scripture, science, and experience, all three. You know, she right here says that we should, we should gather science, but we should always um, acknowledge the fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom, and then next sentence, every item of experience. And everything that can strengthen the mind should be cultivated to the utmost of their power, while at the same time they should seek God for his wisdom, their conscience is illuminated, quick, and pure. For unless they are guided by the wisdom from above, they become an easy prey. So I, I think this is well stated. See the balance here. It's not, let's not demonize science. We don't want to split. See, Satan wins when he can split the threads of evidence. When you can take people and build a theology on experience only. It's my experience, my experience. I get a warm feeling when I pray. Doesn't matter what scripture says, doesn't matter what science says, my feeling. When we have science without experience of scripture. We have scripture, but we devoid and we don't use the laws in nature uh, and the testable laws that God built life to operate upon. Then what happens is we get these arbitrary law theologies that come along. And, and this is Satan's goal. He wants, to, he wants to split the threads of evidence. God, this is out of um, Healthful Living, page uh, 286. God is the foundation of everything. All true science is in harmony with his works. All true education leads to obedience to his government. Science opens new wonders to our view. She soars high and explores new depths, but she brings nothing from her research that conflicts with divine revelation. So I think this is well said again. There's always a harmony rightly understood. And then where I, what, what I wanted to get to, based out of what we were just talking about regarding... Uh, the curse on the earth. And this is out of Healthful Living 290. Many teach that matter possesses vital power. They hold that certain properties are imparted to matter, and it is then left to act through its own inherent power, and that the operations of nature are carried on in harmony with fixed laws that God himself cannot interfere with. This is false science, and is sustained by nothing in the word of God. Nature is not self-acting. She is a servant of her creator. God does not annul his laws, nor work contrary to them, 
but he is continually using them as his instruments. Nature testifies of an intelligence, a presence, an active agency that works in and through and above her laws. There is in nature the continuing working of the Father and the Son. Said Christ, my Father works and I work. God has finished his creative work, but his energy is still exerted in upholding the objects of his creation. It is not because the mechanism that was once been set in motion continues to work by its own inherent energy that the pulse beats and breath follows breath. But every breath, every pulsation of the heart is an evidence of the all-pervading care of him in whom we live and have our being. It is not because of inherent power that year by year the earth produces her bounties and continues her motion around the sun. The hand of God guides the planets and keeps them in position in their orderly march through the heavens. It is through his power that vegetation flourishes that the that the leaves appear and the flowers bloom. His word controls the elements, and by him the valleys are made fruitful. He covers the heavens with clouds and prepares the earth, and so forth and so on. What do you think about this idea? What do you think about this idea? Do you understand the implication? Think through the implication. Do you, first off, do you agree it's true? Do you agree it's true? That, that nature is sustained by ongoing dis, distribution, if you will, dissemination of life-sustaining energy coming from God. <laughs> then what would happen to nature if God were to withdraw his presence? Cursed. <laughs> Say it louder. Cursed. The curse. The curse is on nature. As soon as they sinned, they were cold. Why were they cold and naked? What happened? What were they dressed in before? And why were they not cold? God's fiery presence was removed. Yeah. Was Sandy the result of God's withdrawing his hand? We're going to get right there. It's a great question. I've got it right here. Let's, let's build a... She says, he said, was Sandy withdrawing? I would say, yes, and I'll give you the evidence for it. Absolutely. Sandy was a evidence of God withdrawing his hand. There's no question. In my mind about that. What would happen? Some would call it, as God withdraws, his wrath. The scriptures in Romans and other places makes it very clear that when God lets go, it's called his wrath. Some may call it a curse. And the earth is going to feel this. Revelation chapter 7 talks about the four angels holding back the four winds of strife. And the four angels are described as having the power to harm the land, the air, and the sea. That's how they're described. Revelation 7, 1 through 3, I think. These are the angels that have the power to harm the land, but what are they actually doing? They're holding back. So how is it that they harm? By letting go. You see it in the story of Job. Somebody brought up Job earlier. Story of Job, what do we see? Ah, you've got a hedge of protection around him. Can't do anything to the guy. Okay, I withdraw, I let go, the restraining hand is pulled back. And notice, this is very critical to notice the story of Job. Did God say to Satan, now you must harm Job? Or did he say he's in your hands? Just don't kill him. He said, this is the only line you can't draw, you can't kill him. But could Satan have said, as he said to Christ, hey, all the kingdoms of the world are mine, I can give them to whoever I want. So he has Job proclaimed emperor of the earth and gives him more wealth and more power. Could Satan have done that? Notice he didn't. This is a very powerful testimony. When the restraining hand is removed, what does Satan do? He destroys. He destroys. Things go to chaos.
And as we think about the end of time, we already mentioned here, we're bringing various pieces of our discussion together now. Somebody mentioned earlier that the Holy Spirit has a dwelling place on earth. What is that dwelling place on earth? The temple of, of God, the spirit temple. We are the dwelling place. Does the Holy Spirit force his way into the spirit temple? So what happens in earth, think it through with me, as heart after heart settles, as the great shaking comes, and some are sealed of God, and they become permanent temples for the spirit, but others, by the billions, close the heart permanently to God. What happens to the spirits present on earth? Withdrawn. It's withdrawn because he doesn't want to be here? No, because we reject it. Because we reject it. And when his hand is withdrawn, what's happening on earth? Destruction. Destruction, chaos. Um, I'm going to read to you. I'm going to jump down because we're going to be running out of time. This is out of uh, Manuscript Releases, page 14. Oh, excuse me, volume 14, um, page 3. I was shown that the judgments of God would not come directly out from the Lord upon them, but in this way. This is talking about the judgments in Revelation, the plagues. They place themselves beyond his protection. He warns, corrects, reproves, and points out the only path of safety. Then, if those who have been object of his special care will follow their own course, independent of the Spirit of God, after repeated warnings, if they notice, notice that after repeated warnings, after working and working, if they choose their own way, then he does not commission his angels to prevent Satan's decided attack upon them. It is Satan's power that is at work at sea, and on land, bringing calamity and distress, and sweeping off multitudes to make sure of his prey. And storm and tempest, both by sea and land, will be, for Satan has come down in great wrath. He is at work. He knows his time is short, and he is not restrained. We shall see more terrible manifestations of his great power than we have ever dreamed of. So yes, do I think that Sandy is a manifestation of God's hand slowly being withdrawn? Absolutely. Nature is going to come apart. Because God is the sustaining source behind nature. Yes? I was reading in early writings yesterday about uh, Noah and the flood and how God was warning the people for a long, long time. Um, and they rejected the message and uh, God withdrew his spirit from the earth and they died in the flood and the water. Because he withdrew his spirit, and I never read that before, but I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And um, so I want to I make, 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 uh, make a distinction. Is there a difference between God using his power to inflict storms and tempests and, and hurricanes and things, and God withdrawing his hand and nature falling apart because he's not sustaining it? Is there a difference? There's a huge difference, huge difference. Absolutely. All right, um, back to Wednesday's lesson. The title of the lesson is Wisdom of the World. Wisdom of the world. And the first paragraph says, As humans we have gained an incredible amount of knowledge and information, especially in the last 200 years. Knowledge and information, however, are not the same as wisdom. Uh, we have also gained much greater understanding of the natural world than our forefathers had ever had. A greater understanding, however, is not the same as wisdom. I agree. I don't have time to go through all, but I, I looked up uh, definitions of wisdom, and, and I'll just cut to the chase about my definition for wisdom. See if you think, think this is, is um, what you would call wisdom. Rightly discerning and applying information to one's life in harmony with God's designs, principles, and methods. Rightly discerning and applying the information or knowledge to one's life in harmony with God's designs, principles, and methods. That's wisdom. Okay? And there's a lot of worldly definitions from the dictionary I don't have the time to jump into. The lesson points out that our knowledge in science and information has grown significantly in the last 200 years. How about our knowledge in theology? 
How about our knowledge and the purposes of God? How about our knowledge and what Christ accomplished? How about our knowledge of God himself? Why are we teaching 500-year-old theological constructs that came out of the dark ages when people's minds were dark? Why do we defend them so vociferously? Well, let me read to you something. I was listening uh, to uh, uh, GodsCharacter.com. If anybody's not been to God's Character, tremendous resources at GodsCharacter.com. Sigvi Tonstad, uh, physician and theologian, uh, has a series on Revelation. And I was listening to one of his lectures on Revelation, and he quoted, uh, has a quote from one of the first church historians back in the 4th, 5th century. And this is out of a a book that was looking at um, the church and state from Constantine to... um, Theodosius, and this is uh, um, out of, uh, of that book by Greenslade, quote, and, and get your mind around this, this significance. There is no reserve, and he's describing Eusebius. Eusebius was the first his church historian. And so this historian that he's, he's exploring his, theolo- his uh, perspectives now, who wrote this church history, was a church historian, not a worldly historian. So this is like one of the first church historians working for the church. There is no reserves in the stilted encomium. And what it means is flattery, praise, adulation, adoration. I had to look it up. I really hadn't seen that word before. So there's no reserves in the stilted praise with which Eusebius closes his history. No wistful regret for the blessings of persecution. No prophetic fear of imperial control of the church. His heart is full of gratitude. Remember, this is a church historian. Gratitude to God and Constantine. And it is not only his feelings that are stirred, he is ready with a theory, indeed a theology, of the Christian emperor. He finds a correspondence between religion and politics. With the Roman Empire, monarchy had come on earth as the image of the monarchy in heaven. Did you hear it? It just gave me chills. This is exactly what happened. They concluded... This was the infection. This is what Daniel prophesied about. This is that they would, they would seek to change time and laws. And they accepted that God's law is an imposed law like a Roman emperor. It's not the law that life is built upon, the natural law of love. It is a Roman construct, and God is like a Roman emperor ruling his universe. This is what the church historians recounted. This is what's infected Christianity. This is paganism. And this is a pagan false God construct. And God is waiting. This is the message of Revelation that the gospel is to go to light in the world because the hour in which God will be rightly judged has finally come. And it's our privilege to take a message that says, no, God is not like a Roman emperor. God is creator, designer, builder of things. Not destroyer, ruler, owner of things. And it's time we take the truth about who God is as revealed in Christ, have the testimony. This is those who obey God's commandments. In other words, live in harmony with his methods and have the testimony of Jesus. Take the testimony that Jesus took about God. You see me, you've seen the Father to the world. This is why God waits. He waits for the gospel to go to the world, for the truth about his kingdom of love to be presented. He wants a people to come to know him and reject the beastly views of God that have intoxicated the entire world. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are really humbled as we consider the true immensity of your nature, your character, and the way you, you govern, that you created us, and certainly you have the authority and the power to own us, but no, you didn't. You set us free because you want us to love you. And those freedoms have been abused by many. 
Lord, we humble ourselves and ask for, for your spirit to come and heal our minds, that we will be dwelling places where you will dwell, that we will be conformed back into your likeness, that we will value and practice your methods, that our hearts will be unified with yours, our thoughts will be brought into harmonies with yours. We will live the life that Christ lived. Empower us with, with intelligence, with ability, with opportunity to take a message to the world, to shake the world out of their sleep and their lethargy and this distorted construct that you are like a Roman emperor. May, the, may, may you be lifted up and seen in your true light so that the world can be prepared and you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.